This week on the Twin Geekcast, our views on the Star Wars news, Kurosawa's adventurous romp The Hidden Fortress, High Life, and much more at the box office. Movies and friendship. Those are mysteries. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Fire is coming. Fire is coming. Let's get the show started. Yeah, but, yeah. Welcome back. Hey, Calvin. How you doing this week? I'm reinvigorated after seeing High Life. Finally, some art. Yes. Well, you said you'd wait to talk about that till we got to the box office, so <laughs> zip it for now. I make no promises. <laughs> In the meantime, I think the, the topic of discussion on everyone's right, mind right now is the new information about Star Wars. So we had a busy weekend. We got a little bit on Mandalorian, a little bit on a new video game. And most importantly, Rise of Skywalker is our new Star Wars. Which is an awful title for it. <laughs> I think, I, I haven't seen anyone who's like, yeah, I think that's a fitting title for the end of this trilogy. No, it's it's awful. And if anything, it kind of undercuts a lot of what Last Jedi was going for. I think it does, because I thought that was the end of kind of the Skywalker saga. I mean, the movie ends with Luke disappearing into, you know, presumably, you know, the the other world or whatever. But apparently, you know, we're going to still hammer in that Skywalker name. It's just, I don't know, that's a huge bad call, I think, in trying to renege on everything that Ryan Johnson was doing. Regardless of if you support it or not, he, you know, he definitely had a vision, and he went forth executing it. And it's just kind of disrespectful, I think. I thought it had a hard ending. I I know we have disagreement on the film, but I think we both agree that uh, it might have been a better third movie than a second movie. Yeah, that's the thing, is that... um, you know, if for I think anyone, you know, even if you love the movie, has to kind of agree that when you walked out of Last Jedi, you're like, so what's supposed to happen next? It it doesn't leave anything kind of leading you in the next direction, and that's another problem is that this trailer, this trailer doesn't tell us anything about the film. What's going on? Our biggest indication is that there's probably a return of Palpatine here. It looks like, and I guess that's gonna be the plot, but I don't know how that works in at all. Yeah, I mean, even in the trailer, it doesn't really work in, right? It's just laughter. Uh, yeah. It's, a, it's weird. It's just a weird spot of laughter in the trailer. It's definitely a hook to, to pull people in and get people excited again, because, you know, all those prequel memers really fucking love Palpatine. Oh, it's gonna, it's gonna get I like go. Palpatine. I, I don't know if I like how it's placed in the trailer. I hope they do something bigger with it. Yeah, I don't know. It's a very odd and confusing and and not at all hyping trailer. I remember watching the trailer for Last Jedi and being super excited. You know, it also doesn't tell you a whole lot, but it was visually fantastic and kind of led you, you know, in directions to things, and you saw lots of new, interesting things, whereas here we're seeing a lot of old, predictable things. You know, when the Force Awakens trailer came out, I wanted that feeling again, where I was like, Star Wars is back, motherfucker. Mm Mm-hmm. It yeah. definitely doesn't definitely doesn't feel the case. This feels like a very milk toast Star Wars film, and that's very disappointing to see. And I feel like Abrams can be a little bit people pleasing the way he directs. I mean, once we finally got Force Awakens, it felt that way. So I feel like he would be the one that would uh, try to wrap everything neatly in a bow. And that uh, I mean, I feel like Force Awakens and Rise of Skywalker will be a lot lower impact. Um, whatever they do, they're not going to have five years of like a fanboy debates about whether or not they were good yeah i don't know i think uh things kind of definitely went for the worst i think uh, uh, the biggest thing as well is just that 
unlike say the the Marvel movies, the dominators of the blockbusters right now, there's not there wasn't a cohesive vision going into Star Wars here. So Abrams came in with the first film, set up a lot of questions. Ryan Johnson, I think, while I appreciate what he was doing there, made the mistake of dismissing all of those questions because you know it it really ruined. Uh, any kind of building the film was doing on previous work, though I also kind of blame uh, Kathleen Kennedy for not pushing for that more as the producer of this project and all that, you know. Definitely, there need to be uh, more oversight to make this a cohesive vision overall, and you can definitely see with this newest trailer that that's not going to be the case, that we're not going to be continuing off of Last Jedi's themes and setups. Yeah, for me, it was a very great self-contained Star Wars, but it wasn't you know, it's it's not my favorite Star Wars. It's still in my top three. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll which, be interested to see where it goes. We The trailer doesn't should, show us a whole lot. but We should discuss a little bit, I guess, that we have very different ideas about Star Wars. Yeah, I I'm definitely was, was more in the camp of being disappointed and a bit frustrated by Last Jedi, but unlike all the haters and toxic fanboys out there, it's not because of, of Rose or any of the things they did to change characters. It was mostly just in execution i felt some things were a little sloppy and the comedy was a little too heavy on things you know the tone was a little imbalanced the film was a little long and you know of course as everyone else i thought that the uh, canto bite sequence was, was kind of very tacked on and unnecessary and unrelated yeah um i think that uh well rogue rogue one's also my second favorite star wars which, which is, is wrong it's not wrong it's just it's wrong uh, it's <laughs> it's just a fact that it's the second best one no no it's not and no one else in in the entire site here, or even the world, I think, or is bound to agree with you. <laughs> I don't even know if the directors would necessarily agree with me that they made the second best one, but I feel like it has the best idea of evoking a war of any Star Wars. It feels like you're in the middle of something. It just has such boring and bland characters. I love the characters. No, it's like lame. a whole crew. No, no, bad. Felicity Jones is a bad actor here. What the hell is Diego Luna doing? It's just it's awful. <laughs> I I like the whole cast and I like how diverse it is and what it brings into Star Wars and that you get like a like a, a in depth view of all the different sides of a war, which is kind of what I always thought it would be. Look, you know, I'm not one to shame people's opinions of things. If you like something, you like it, that's fine. But I'm going to make an exception in this case just to continually tell you you're wrong forever. It's just it's it's, it's not a right opinion, Calvin. Just just move on from it. Man, Rogue One is so good. I, I think I'm going to go rewatch that after this. All right, fine. But in the meantime, uh, let's talk about the box office instead. Um, let's uh, yeah, let's jump to number twenty-one. Um, right. All right. I said I said I would let you. I said it earlier here. Fine. You can talk about High Life just a little bit, not too much because uh, you know we want people to read your review, which you'll have here on the site as well next week. Okay, um, it's a combination of like a silent running and uh, alien kind of cosmic horror, where they're like um, ex-cons drifting toward a black hole, and it's a very sexual um, film about creation and birth. Uh, mm-hmm. I absolutely loved it. It's my favorite of the year, and I could see that holding on till December. I think it's interesting mentioning the the black hole, especially with the the recent you know, reveal of our, our first photographic image of a black hole. You think that has any interesting context? I think it does, and I think it comes at an interesting right time for this. That uh, uh, Interesting that it would come out the same week that we found a black hole, and that that's the whole plot of the film, is a, a family drifting into one. So um, maybe it's uh, foretelling our future. 
Mm -hmm. I see that the ratings of the film are pretty divisive here. It's not... Are they? Uh, yeah. It's only got a 6.7 on IMDb right now. And I know um, uh, even our uh, one of our writers here, Laura, she was definitely not up for what the film was trying to do. I could see it having um, diverse reactions, and I respect uh, her right to be able to walk out of it. But uh, also, I don't think that Claire Denis really needs to be censored. An excellent French director... Uh, making her first English language film, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, well, just in general as well, you, you really enjoy divisive films. You know, if there's, <laughs> yeah, true. If there's controversy surrounding it, you're going to go out and see it. Yeah, it doesn't really matter what the context is. If mm -hmm. there's controversy, um, I'm even going to go see New Hellboy. Like, it doesn't matter to me. Right. We should get to it this week so we could kind of talk about it a bit. But, yeah, everyone's busy, and you really wanted to see High Life, I know, so. Yeah, it's already my film of the year and that's gonna hold on but uh uh i don't want to spend too much time on it we're going i'm gonna require us to do a full podcast one day yeah we'll see if i get there eventually you know how long it takes me to get to films yeah <laughs> all no right rush. uh number 10 here we'll start off with uh the best of enemies which i saw a review went up a few days ago at the time of this uh at the time this will go up but uh it's all right it's uh it's a little problematic yeah, uh, I think as you said in your review, kind of, it's, it's, it's another one chain of uh, kind of uh, racism apologies films, it seems. Which yeah, is Sam... and <laughs> one in a line that Sam Rockwell has picked up. So. Yeah, uh, I'm actually uh, kind of concerned that he's going to get pigeonholed in these parts, and then I'm going to start questioning where his motivations are if he keeps playing racist characters. <laughs> Well, I think the thing to it is that to be an ally, you really have to go do something, right? To be a white guy and an ally, um, you know, like a modern version of an ally is just talking online, but uh, what if you have something to lose? What if you're a KK card, you know, card-owning member and you're the president of your local Ku Klux Klan? Then, uh, you know, what do you have to lose at that point? You have a lot, and so uh, there's some admiration behind it. Mm-hmm. But uh, recall right in your review, you found it kind of middling, especially in comparison to what's going on. You feel like they're all kind of hitting the same beats. And How do you make a film about the KKK only targeting white people? <laughs> what the <laughs> hell are you doing? Well, that was the biggest thing. I remember. Your review really highlights that the perspective of the film really wants to focus on the KKK member and kind of ignore the the actual struggle of the, you know, the, the black characters having to deal with this guy and the, yeah, the problems it ignores, going on. It ignores Atwater completely unless it involves the white man, which is like that old movie thing of uh, women are only defined like by their relationships to men, right? Like this is only black people are defined by their relationships with the uh, their allies as white people. And I think that's horrible. Uh, it, it sounds like it has the same issue that Green Book does, but like way worse because yeah. he's like... An actual racist. <laughs> and Green Book's just a better movie. This comes from a producer of Sea Biscuit, so he's not a natural director, and he has a uh, he has a producer's eye for things. He's good at uh, framing certain actors, and he has good actors here giving good performances. But he's not a good director. Mm -hmm. Well, that's unfortunate, but you know it won't be around here long. It looks like, and I don't know. I think this uh, trend of you know kind of race apologist films is definitely a reaction to the times we have going on. But hopefully. We'll get more along the lines of, you know, uh, the more artistic takes. You know, I still love Sam Rockwell most in uh, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, because his performance there is very fantastic. I need to revisit it, but uh, yeah. let's keep this moving here. All right. Uh, number nine here, we have one a little bit more closer to home. Uh, Missing Link here. It's the new Leica film. 
which are like a they they are a, what are they Portland? Uh, they they have a central office in Portland, but their actual studio is out of Hillsboro. They're, so they're they're really close to me. When I first moved out here, I actually applied a bunch to them, but you know to no avail. Yeah, they, they're a fantastic animation studio, and they work around pl- practical animation, which is a a lot of stop motion. This is their their fourth feature, I believe. They did uh, Coraline, Paranorman, Kubo, and the Two Strings, and now this Missing Link. And now uh, I'm a little bit worried because every time they put out a picture, it does a little bit worse than the last one. Yeah, it's a. Uh, I think some of it might have to do with their their choice of film here. Kubo, <laughs> I would have think done a lot better, but this this one definitely feels like more of a niche interest, especially if you want to set it initially within the Pacific Northwest, which unfortunately nobody but us cares about. <laughs> right, and uh, it only spends about ten minutes there, and then it's on to another location. But we have a good western outpo- outpost, which made me really want to stop motion uh, western at some point. Yeah, I don't think there's anything quite like that. There's there's very few even animated westerns off the top of my head. I think there's Rango, Rango, and uh, Five Wool Goes West, the American Tale sequel. Yeah, which that might be it. I, I can't think of any others off the top of my head. And uh, I'm I'm pretty disappointed with how Missing Link's done in the box office. It's going to be out next week, and uh, it doesn't really, you know, it hasn't made any impact. It's done. Uh, it's done half as well as Kubo, which did half as well as Emoji Movie. It's done ten million less than Wonder Park. Did Kubo, I, <laughs> did Kubo really only do half as much as Emoji Movie? Yeah, coming oh ar- my. out around the same time. Oh my God! What? That's absolutely dreadful. Why? Then, uh, this one did eighteen million less than Smallfoot, the Bigfoot movie from last year, which I think might be its problem that we already got one a few months ago. Well, that happens a lot, where you have a trend of similarly based, you know, concepts coming out around the same time and all that. And, you know, I think you pointed out recently to us in our in our chat here that there's like four various Bigfoot movies kind of coming around. And that's not even if you count the Sam Elliott one, where he kills Bigfoot, apparently. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah there's that one, uh, Sam Elliott, who uh, plays this guy um, that kills the Bigfoot. That's interesting. Then we have the... What is it? Um, what's the one next year? Some DreamWorks. Um, I don't know. Abominable, I think it's called. Yeah, I think that's it. And that uh, it's interesting because each of the animations is about uh, losing and finding someone, right? Like a um, the the Smallfoot's about finding. Um, what is it? It's the it's the Bigfoot finds humans. He discovers humans for the first right. time. Right. The, the mythical Link. creatures known as humans. Right. Then Missing Link's about finding the Bigfoot and him trying to find his clan, and then Abominable is about uh, finding your family. So they're all the same movie, essentially. And that's kind of unfortunate, and probably a lot has to do with it. And also, I just think that Bigfoot movies, like, nobody wants to go see them. After after Harry and the Hendersons, what's really, you know, <laughs> what is they really worth? Um, yeah, I agree. Let's keep moving through this thing. Yeah. Uh, number eight here, we have After... Which is a One Direction uh, fan fiction. Right. Uh, so we've got a, a string of that now. This is becoming a, a, a profitable uh, venue for your, your fan fiction. You can write fan fiction and make it a serious major motion picture. we got the Fifty Shades movie, and you know which was Twilight fan fiction. And now we have your One Direction fan fiction, which is now a real thing. So Finally, this, but I'll pass. This is, this is the direction that art has evolved into. <laughs> and I don't think that's a good thing. It's the you could say it's the one direction art can go. <laughs> I don't want to say that 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 pun neutralized me. Oh. <laughs> uh, what else do we have here? 
I'll move on then. Okay, at number seven, we have Us still. Uh, you know, Jordan Peele's new film, horror film. Um, we've covered that pretty thoroughly. I don't think we need to spend any real yep. time on it. Uh, I like review. it. You think it's fine. So. We have a review on the site for it, as well as the previous podcast we did. Please check either of those out if you're interested to know our thoughts. And, and number, um, yep. before that, we have six with Captain Marvel, which uh, Laura's reviewed as well. So Yes, and I believe... Uh, she was much more positive on it than I think the rest of us have kind of been. We found it kind of middle Marvel road here, you know, but nice to see some more female representation and hopefully, you know, her character improves more when she shows up in Endgame. Yeah, one could hope. Uh, there's some leaks last night, so uh, we'll see what happens. Yes, there. Uh, anyone who does not want to be spoiled, very be very careful on the internet because there are all sorts of spoilers out there right now. Ant-Man defeats the uh, Thanos, sir. By, by jumping into his butt and blowing up. That's the fan theory. No comment. <laughs> uh, moving on, number five, we have uh, Dumbo, still hanging around, made uh, $9 million this week. Uh, now Tim Burton's made more iffy films than he has good films. So. Yeah, he's becoming more like the Ed Wood that he initially <laughs> just depicted. <laughs> it's true, shit. <laughs> I haven't thought of that, but yeah, he's become Ed Wood. Mm-hmm. Very sad for, for Tim Burton, but I don't know. I think we all kind of hold out hope that he'll eventually gain his creative spark back, but it's a it's a very desperate hope that I, I don't think will ever be fulfilled. Uh, I thought Dumbo was fine. I, I, there's there's no review up, but I, I think it's okay. Mm-hmm. I know you definitely had issues with the kind of, uh, um, kind of empty message of the, you know, anti-corporate thing coming from Disney who just, you know, bought out Fox and became a, you know, gigantic, you know, uh, undefeatable giant at the box office. <laughs> yeah, I feel like they sent a memo out to all their creative teams saying that we need you to fight against us so we don't become a monster. So, mm-hmm. uh, that's what all their te- all their movies were the last year before the Fox buyout, and I don't think they're going to be like that afterward. You think anything else is, no, nothing else is coming that's going to be like that? They're just going to no. embrace their, you know, megalomatic image now? No, I feel like that was all kind of like to soothe the nerves of what they were about to do. So now we'll see what they do. It'd be an interesting play, but we'll see what comes next. I know we got plenty of Disney films to go around this year. Yeah, I mean, uh, we'll see. Mm-hmm. Uh, number four here, we have uh, Pet Cemetery. Um, it's interesting coming into like a, a territory of kind of elevated horror that this sort of looked like that in the trailers, but it looks like it's obviously not anything like that. Yeah, it's, it looks like it's another notch in the, you know, studio system horror films that we're getting a lot of. We'll get It Part 2 later this year as well. It's weird, though, because they figured out the formula of how that looks in a trailer, right? Like, mm-hmm. they figured out what an A24 film looks like in a trailer, and they're like, okay, we could do that, but uh, we don't have to make that film, so now we're getting marketed something that, you know, it's not necessarily the same thing. Yeah, but I guess, I was going to say, it, trailers are definitely more of an art on their own now, you know. Yeah hitting all the right beats and kind of analyzing it. I'd be curious to see what people could pull apart from the various trailers and their influence here. It'd be interesting, yeah. I mean, um, our trailers are becoming more interesting than our movies, which is a precarious place. Mm-hmm. Eventually all our media will be consumed in a, you know, two to three minute format. <laughs> It'd be nice. <laughs> uh, number three, keep going here, we have uh, the new Hellboy, which actually premiered a bit higher than I thought I was going to, based on all the awful, awful reviews. Although twelve million, it's not going. There's no way they can make a sequel off of it, and it did. I mean, mm-hmm. it did worse than the than the old ones, I think. 
did it? I'm not even sure what their openings uh, were like, but it wouldn't surprise me because not really a whole lot of clamor for this. You know, David Harbour, I know he's kind of big coming off of Stranger Things, but he, he wasn't a name like uh, Del Toro was at the time coming off of Blade 2 and Pan's Labyrinth, respectively. Yeah, I feel bad for the guy playing Hellboy because he has a lot to live up to with Pearlman, who's just like the embodiment of the character. Well, the biggest problem it looks like to me, based on all the trailers and everything, and from what I've heard, is that they went so heavy on the makeup that he can't even really act through it. There's no <laughs> there's no difference in facial expression in any of his shots uh, in the trailer. He's just, like, caked in this stuff and forced in this, you know, kind of permanent, you know, angry position. Whereas, you know, looking back at Perlman stuff, he, he definitely had a full range of expression, you know, and they used his... Yeah, I think the smart thing as well with casting Perlman is that he already had this kind of nice blocky, you know, face to him that really lent itself to the character more. Yeah, he looks like Hellboy, and that worked out well for him. Yeah. So all they really did was the, you know, the prosthetics on his head were mostly just the horns, you know, and everything else was just Perlman. Yeah, then Red Perlman, it works. Yep. Whereas Harbor, it's definitely, it looks like, you know, he might as well put a helmet on. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm interested because it's like a horror and a lot of, well, it's a horror and a lot more cursing. It feels like the R-rated Hellboy that uh, we never really got, so mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious, but we'll see. Yeah, I know uh, uh, comic creator Mike McNola had a bit more of a hand in here, and I don't know if that's necessarily always the best thing, you know. <laughs> no, it's like it's like with Pet Cemetery when exactly, I was just gonna close. say. Yeah, because with King, he, he basically had full say over what happened to the original Pet Cemetery in it, and that obviously led to a lot of issues. Not that this new one's necessarily better. I know, you know, Jesse in his review certainly didn't think so, but sometimes you need to let your let your baby go and let somebody else work with it, especially when adapting to a different medium. Yeah, sometimes dead is better. Um, <laughs> well, what right, do we have at two here? Two, we have Little, which we had to do a little bit of research on <laughs> i'd say very little research we realize it's reverse big and that uh it's interesting that our uh, our top two in the box office are the same movie but reversed yep basically the same kind of idea there so instead of a little kid becoming an adult a an adult succumbs to the pressures of her, her world and reverts to being a little kid which there's a lot of right now <laughs> i'm realizing in the cinema there's a lot of that kind of wish fulfillment yeah, oh, I kind of think of uh, what Wonder Park also kind of takes us back there, where it's like, ah, everything around me sucks too much, uh, I'm just going to revert into my imagination land. And yeah, that's effectively what I this mean, is, too. I think it tells you a lot about what's happening uh, in the minds of creatives right now, that that's the visions we're getting. But. Well, that's the kind of thing, that's the, the wish fulfillment kind of deal we're looking for right now, is there's like, everything around us sucks, I'm tired of doing adult stuff, it's... Everything is awful. Please let me just go back to some kind of fantasy world where I don't have to worry about anything for a little while. And mm. that's a lar large kind of reaction to this, it seems. And we kind of even commented that Hellboy is a similar character in that regard, and that he's kind of yeah. a, a childish man, you know, person trapped in a more responsible body. A Hellboy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but it doesn't look like the film is rating too well it's going to be one of those kind of generic things and that's that's the problem i think big is going to be the bar for that forever essentially and you're not really <laughs> yeah. gonna you're not really gonna top that you're not going to clear that bar unless you're uh maybe number one at our box office yeah shazam but well, i think shazam was number one last week too right yeah yeah, yeah. um it's the only one we had for a while that's uh, actually held on for a couple weeks uh, it's pretty new this year that that will happen 
Yeah, and so that's really good. And I've seen nothing but really positive takes on Shazam. Like, really positive takes, too. People are really going for this, and they're saying it's a very new kind of superhero movie at that, and it really understands what it wants to be. Yeah, it it sounds a little long to me, but uh, I, I'd go along with it. I, I might go see it, but uh, I'll probably wait for it on demand anyway. That's what I might wait for, because, you know, it's already hard enough to get me out of the theater, but... You know, ever since those trailers started dropping, I was, you know, I was, I was intrigued by the trailers. Definitely going back to that kind of conversation, they they're cut really well and kind of show you everything you want to see from this movie, but not showing you everything. Yeah, check out on the site. Bro wrote a good review of it, and it, it I like the idea that it goes back to the uh, kind of golden age of comics where they're a lot more fun and not as serious, but uh, all the jokes aren't really a wink and nod at the audience. There, you know, maybe there's something uh, a little bit more art to it. Yep, it seems like between this and Aquaman, you know, DC is kind of getting their, you know, direction a little bit more figured out. Yeah, they James... got some swagger back, right? Yeah, and they got, they're bringing James Gunn on to do Suicide Squad 2, and we know he's going to inject it with a lot of fun, you know, an adventure kind of going on there, more silliness. So it's, I, th- I think they're kind of really going down the right path. They they listened and they got their shit figured out. Yeah, between Wonder Woman and this, I feel good about the direction. I didn't like Aquaman, but that's all right. right. Well, I think the people responded to the to the fun spirit of Aquaman, but from what I understand, it's a it's a goddamn mess still. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's clunky it's... And, and not good, but fun, and that's th- that's what they need. I think the spirit of how they made it shows that they're on the right path, despite it being a bad movie. Mm-hmm. Well, the movie we chose to talk about this week is definitely not bad. I think we, you know, kind of returning back to. One of our uh, favorites. We, last time we talked about um, director, you know, this director. You weren't here. No. Um, last time you guys did uh, Yo Jimbo in my absence. Uh. Yeah, and uh, and I know uh, you you were kind of a little uh, miffed, I guess, uh, just a little bit that we you know talked about Kurosawa without you. But now you got your chance to because <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. We well, decided... I'd say that you and uh, Graham are probably our our biggest uh, uh, Kurosawa stalwarts on the site here. Yeah, most certainly. We, I think, collectively have seen the, the most uh, from him, you know, a very wide range. But, you know, that's not to say that you guys haven't. And I think Kurosawa is a very fantastic filmmaker to return to constantly. He's one of my absolute favorites. And this one we've chosen this week is especially close to me because uh, The Hidden Fortress was the first Kurosawa film I ever saw. <laughs> And for a rousing action-adventure epic, discover the Hidden Fortress. A young, feisty princess must escape through enemy territory with the royal treasure to restore her shattered kingdom. She is led through adventure against impossible odds by two bumbling, greedy peasants and a valiant, crafty general played by the legendary Toshiro Mufumi. Carrie Ricky of the Boston Herald tells us the acknowledged inspiration for Star Wars, The Hidden Fortress, is earthly fun that easily surpasses Lucas' trilogy. Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress. It, it's really good entry, Kurosawa, I think. Yeah, I think it's the kind of perfect one. What's, what's really great about uh, Hidden Fortress is that, you know, Kurosawa had just come off of doing a lot of more 
you know, emotionally kind of complex films. You know, he did uh, Seven Samurai and Rashomon in the same decade, and a year before Hidden Fortress, he did Throne of Blood, you know, his Macbeth adaptation. So in order to kind of pay back the studio for, you know, taking all these risks on him and letting him do artsier projects, he's like, I'm just going to make a straight-up, like, kind of blockbuster adventure film for everyone, and everyone's going to love it. It's going to be a lot of fun. That's and what they it do. Is. Yeah. yeah. And he succeeds in that, and that tells you something about Kurosawa, right? That, uh, that I, I think it might be, you know, it's not even my top film. High and Low is my favorite, of course. Then I have Yojimbo, then mm-hmm. Rashomon, and then, you know, it's not even, like, top five, but... Uh, like top six Kurosawa is still better than uh, mostly anything anyone else makes. Well, I think that's the thing is kind of interesting as well is that there's so many of Kurosawa's films that are masterful that you know almost any one of them you could pick and say that one's my favorite and you can make an argument for it certainly. Right. Like my my favorite's definitely more Ron. I think Ron is his greatest ever. It's just absolutely beautiful, tragic, epic film. It's not everyone's favorite by any means, uh, but you know you, you could certainly argue for it. And again, in the same way with um, High and Low, obviously as well. And but most people, I think, generally will say Seven Samurai is kind of the peak. Yeah, I mean, you take all those films. I still put Hidden Fortress behind all of them, but I still say they're all better examples than any other Japanese director. Yeah, well, Hidden Fortress is definitely, I think, one of my my favorites for a lot of that kind of nostalgic and discovery purposes you know we said just a moment ago that it's it's really kind of a light-hearted adventure kind of fun thing but you can definitely still feel the artistry of it and kurosawa's masterful use of the camera and you know kind of blocking in characters and everything one of my favorite things about the film is the the actual framing of shots is so magnificent at some points especially you know once we get into the introduction of all the characters even from the introduction of the film, we're getting like these two guys. We don't know what they're up to, but the something's obviously going on. This guy looks terrified. He's falling into the frame, but uh, oh these, yeah, that's... then these guys attack him from off the frame, and it never like moves out of the shot. And that's like the beauty of what Kurosawa can do. He can, you know, uh, space uh, objects like in relation to their context. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a really great setup for it because what's what kind of really works about the comedy of the film is that it's you know. The, it's a grander story told through the eyes of these very lesser characters, these thieves, and they're, they're the comic relief essentially throughout it, and these bumbling idiots who just want gold. <laughs> yeah, and um, I thought it was a good tie-in because these seem like the natural inspirations for like uh, R2-D2 and C-3PO yeah. of Star Wars. Well, famously, that is you know the case here, is that Hidden Fortress was a great influence on George Lucas when making Star Wars, not just in the fact that it's a plot about a general and, you know, escorting a princess through a dangerous enemy territory, but more specifically on the idea that the story is told through the eyes of the two lesser characters here, and again, translating the, you know, the two thieves here to R2-D2 and C-3PO. And again, you see more parallels, and I guess it would lend itself even more to that if uh, Lucas originally got, as he wanted, uh, Toshiro Mifune to play Obi-Wan Kenobi. Hmm. It would be great, wouldn't it have? It would have been interesting, but I think that would have been... Uh, I, I prefer the Allegheny's choice here, because if you went with Mifune, then the samurai kind of influence is just way too blunt than in the film, making it, that. I mean, I think it I think it really is in like the philosophy of the Jedi and the emperors and everything. It, it all feels very feudal Japan, doesn't it? Star oh, it's Wars. absolutely... Uh, you know, Lucas was... He basically pulled from just about everything, you know, influential possible. He pulled from westerns for a lot of character influence he pulled from you know old sci-fi serials kind of like a 
you know, uh, Buck Rogers and stuff. And he pulled, you know, from, of course, Samurai and that kind of thing. He pulled from World War II stuff as well, with all the Stormtrooper and fascist imagery and all that. Star Wars is an amalgamation of just about everything you could imagine. Yeah, and I feel like that's what makes it such a pop culture success, is that it, it combines everything. And that, um, in some way, everyone says this is Kurosawa's best, like, popcorn picture, right? Like, it's it's his most fun and easy-watching film. Yeah, and that's why I think it's this kind of perfect introduction. At least it certainly was for me. I remember, um, you know, it was Kurosawa was a filmmaker I'd heard about for a long time, and I remember one day I was browsing through, uh, you know, one of these local DVD stores or whatever around, and I saw it on DVD there, and I thought about buying it. It was an old, it was an old Criterion DVD, and one of the first ones that I ended up getting. <clears throat> so I got it there and I bought it, and I went home and watched it, and absolutely just fell in love. It was this, you know, great exposure to it. It's very accessible. I found it extremely accessible, despite being very unfamiliar with foreign cinema at that point. And then, um, you know, going on and continue to watch it. And that's then what really got me finally to sign up for Filmstruck to begin with, because I knew they had a bunch of Kurosawa stuff. And, you know, I haven't really, you could see like a huge cultural imprint in Japan, especially uh, with everything that would follow this. But uh, Kurosawa also makes like in the Western tradition, um, it's very obvious where he's like inspired by Ford to make something like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and sometimes he was, you know, as we said in the Yojimbo podcast, he was a little chastised by, uh, you know, his Japanese audience and you know other filmmakers there for being so influenced in a in a Western manner. And eventually, um, you know, because of that, a lot of his later films had to get extra help in production from people like George Lucas and Coppola and Scorsese, who helped finance the ending of like. Ron and Dreams and Kagamusha. Yeah, it comes a little bit fi- uh, full circle there. Yeah. Um, I I don't know. I, I'm always impressed with the, how this moves, too. Um, I like the, the movement through the towns and that it feels like a little bit of a journey. Um, I like that these two, you know, bumbling idiots kind of get to escort uh, uh, Mifune and, um, and the princess. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of... Uh... The, the big things that struck me about the film and probably grabbed my attention first, because this is really the first exposure that I had as well to, to Toshiro Mufune, and that that is life-changing, I have to say. Yeah, he's such a force in this. He's like a, he's a tank. Yeah, oh, I love him because <laughs> he's this very intimidating presence when we first him, and I love, I love, I love, I love his introduction to the film because he's just, he's framed perfectly up way on the top of that hill there, just like an mm-hmm. ant almost in the frame, way up high. <laughs> And it's, just fa- it's fantastic because the first time they try to challenge him he just like you know he just like outreaches his arm and they're like thrown into the pool and they're like let's do him in but they they got nothing on mifune mm-hmm. oh i love that kind of introduction like like he just goes up and he asserts his dominance by sitting at the fireside <laughs> and they're like we need to tell him to go and, and then like they can't even muster up the courage to tell him and he just kind of nods his head <laughs> <laughs> he just and turns it, his head right at him and it physically arrests them in place. It's great. <laughs> oh, and it's, it's great. Well, one of the favorite things as well is that they, they kind of lay out their whole plan in the sand, drawing up the map for how they're going to get from Azuki to, um, you know, the other place they're going by going through Yamana and whatnot. And, and Mifune's reaction, he just lets out this big belly of a laugh about it. <laughs> and it's great. And he's just like, yep, that's the idea. That's what right. we're going with. And I, I think it, I think it works for him because they have a, they have a, you know, an ulterior route. You could find something from these weird guys that just kind of live on the fringes. Kind right, of reminded me a little bit of a Red River that way when they lay down the plans for the maps. 
Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, when the the drawing in the sand. It's it's very reminiscent of that, isn't it? Kind yeah. of at the end where you see Dunson draw the the Red River D in the in the sand there. Absolutely, I agree with that. And um, I feel like it does have a lot of Western movement to the way the story moves. It feels like one of those caravan westerns. Yeah, certainly. Well, because it's a it's a whole kind of adventure. It's a trek, you know, through it. It feels like you know they're they're bringing the the carriage of wood across, and you could almost imagine it as a stagecoach instead. Yeah, um, I I really enjoy that, and I I like the the princess and Mifune too. Who plays the princess? She's fantastic. Oh, I can't remember her name. Let me I got, got it, it right on here. MDib right here. Um, you said it again. All right. uh, I, I'm gonna have a hard time pronouncing his name. Uh, Misa Yuhura, I believe is her okay. name. Misa, yeah, she's fantastic. I I like her kind of uh, chewing the scenery acting here. Well, she in the, she does a really great job of it, and you know she she portrays this character really well. They establish her as needing to take on this more masculine role because that's what kind of pushed on her by the family, and especially she has a huge pressure of taking over the whole clan, and you know because everyone else was killed, you know, for it, and she's only like a sixteen year old, and she has to fight this. And I think there's uh, a kind of progressive image with that too. This very empowering, you know, feminist character. I think she's fantastic. I think she's aged really well too. Mm-hmm. Her character definitely has. There's, there's not really any problems with her character. There's a really great moment where she's, you know, she curses out Mafune for sacrificing hmm. her, you know, his sister in her place and whatnot, and you know they, she's kind of scolded by the elders for not even shedding a tear for her and just you know being upset and then you see her go out on the cliffside and it's this great grand moment this big close-up on her his tears are coming down her face with the music going and the the azuki flag you know kind of superimposed on, on top of her there and they they have a similar relationship they're almost the same it's like um mifune is her general so he works through her and his family makes sacrifices so his mm-hmm. sister gave her uh, her life so that the princess could live, and you know neither of them could cry, and that that creates a powerful character dynamic between them. Yeah, and then there's the I think another powerful moment later again with the kind of you know her character gets the chance to save one of their people, you know the girl mm-hmm. in the in the whorehouse, and she insists on it despite uh, you know shows her her humanity and her wanting to protect her people. Her you know she really comes around to her duty. Which uh, initially, at least, saves them from the <laughs> the people that are uh, coming to get them on the horsebacks. But then there's that funny moment where they they turn around and the guys are like, "Oh shit!" Mm-hmm. I think there's actually uh, that whole sequence in like the market area or whatnot. There's there's a lot of really good comedy and obstacles that are set up for them all to come over. Because like there's the instance where the guy comes, he's like, "Let me buy your horse." And they can't say no because that would draw so much suspicion. Why wouldn't they want to sell their horse for this great price, you know? And so they, they have to find a new way to work around it. There's a lot of obstacles for them to overcome. And then, you know, later as well, trying to get through uh, what's it called the, the pass. You know, I love that moment where they've, they've got to figure out a way to get through the the gate there into the Yamina territory without um, them inspecting all of their sticks. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um and you could feel a lot of the the comedy, even being from like Western influences. There's a lot of Laurel and Hardy there, and and other troops that might have inspired them. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, physical comedy, I think for sure as well. You know, a lot of that kind of going on there. Uh, early on, uh, I love that bit as well. Again, there's, I think what um, Hidden Fortress does really, really well is it safeguards information from the audience, and it kind of reveals it in interesting ways. So, like, early on, when we're introducing Fune, and he's about to show the, the two thieves the Hidden Fortress, mm. he makes them climb up the side of the mountain, 
it's only afterwards were revealed and showed the, um, you know, the secret passageway and how, you know, Mufune got there before them, which leads, of course, to a hilarious joke, you know, that, you know, he tricked them essentially to extenuate all this effort to get up this craggy mountain. Yeah, I think it, I think it works well to who, who we're with at any moment. It, it's good at positioning us with the, with side characters, like most of the time, like, uh, Lucas talks about how he's influenced mostly on how it, um, how it was a story told through side characters, which has always interested me about it. Yeah. Well, I think what's really important about the film is not to just label it as that, because uh, the smart thing about the storytelling is that it knows when to leave the perspective of the, the main side characters there and tell us and give us the information that they don't have. You know, if we only followed the side characters throughout the whole time, we would not know about the general plot and all of that going on because they're foolish enough not to believe, you know, the general when he says who he is. And then they go out of their way to make sure they don't know more about it, especially like even saying how the princess is actually a mute. You know, tell her that she's a princess or anything because these guys really can't be trusted. There's a good like a comedy of errors about that too, where they're you know they're pretty foolhardy about uh, everything they want to pursue, and mm-hmm. uh, when they get an opportunity, they don't they don't necessarily take it. Mm-hmm. They definitely do try and wiggle their way out and take for as much as they can get, though. And they're very, the funniest thing about them is that they're so um, motivated by greed throughout the whole picture that it's it leads to some very hilarious things, and that's how they influence them to kind of keep going. It's just this incentive of gold the whole time. They're still thieves, no matter how you cut it. Absolutely. like, And, and it's funny listening to them cry. I, I think one of the funniest things as well is watching them have to throw all of the sticks into the giant fire at the festival there and they're right. just crying about it as they're swept into the dancing crowd everyone else is super <laughs> happy and having a good time and they're just like my gold it's such a good scene too um it's it's a, a very influential scene mm-hmm. uh, and you know of course it comes back around it's an important character moment for the princess you know and she mm-hmm. kind of her, you know, having had the Princess Jasmine kind of time where she's leaving the castle for the first time and experiencing the woes of the real people and all that kind of stuff. You could feel that it's pulling from, like, that kind of old literature, like Arabian Nights kind of deal. Yeah, certainly there, that that uh, kind of classic Prince of the Pauper or whatever way you want it. Is it, you know, tale as old as time or whatever? Yeah, classic princess story. Um, we haven't really covered many of those that are very just traditional uh, storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one other thing that definitely needs to be highlighted about the film is that it's, uh, I would still classify it kind of in the samurai genre, even though it's not strictly that. I mean, you know, the the general is definitely a samurai character, but it really gets to to prove its worth there when we get to a really great battle sequence in the middle of the film. I mean, you put Mifune in anything in a role like this, and he's a a badass samurai, whatever he is, right? Yeah, I mean, that's always what he'll be, no matter what kind of role he plays. That's just Mifune. That's who he is. It's Mifune. But he really gets a. I think what's really interesting about the battle sequence here is that unlike traditional, you know, samurai fights where it's usually, you know, going you know, sword duels or whatnot, this one's a, a little scene spear battle. Yeah, um, the spear battle is fun. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really well paced, and uh, you know, there's a good moments of tension leading up to it where he's riding on the horse with the sword, chopping down the guys, and he gets the last one right as he rides straight into the heart of the enemy <laughs> there, and he's surrounded. But then there's that. Uh, you know, the, the code of the duel there, essentially, where they, they fight it out with each other. And it it reminds me a lot, and that's where that uh, spaghetti Western influence comes from, is the patience of the fight and the lead-up to it there. Yeah, you know? I 
Kurosawa definitely defined the pace that would come in the spaghetti western or the Italia western. So there's right. a lot of good stuff. And also the um, bombastic bombastic kind of romping music following that kind of scene is also early in place here. Yeah, the score here is really fantastic and really kind of sets the, the tone for everything, especially, again, during that fight scene where it really kind of ramps up the tension of everything going on and makes every hit, you know, just seem that more powerful and threatening. There's so much influence, and I, I love the way that people jump on their horses. <laughs> they, like, yes. they jump, and then they're already in a gallop once they land. It's such a spaghetti western idea, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely the... I guess going back to like him riding the horse up to that scene, it's cut very well, where even though it's a lot of the same shot repeated kind of over and over, where it's, you know, pan from the left to the right as he kind of rides by and everything, it keeps mm-hmm. building up the, the tension of that, uh, I think, you know, kind of making things seem faster than they are. And I think it's um, it's such a well-paced film, too, that it, it works for me that uh, it's able to find that kind of... Um, ability to play with time a little bit and hold our suspense and it's really good at leveraging that yeah well like i said i think uh, a lot of what lends itself to the pacing is the development of the plot over time and the obstacles that keep being put in their way it's not just a repetition of scenes over and over things change as the story goes they have to you know they're they're stuck in the fortress for a while and have to kind of come up with a plan once they come up with a plan they load up all the wood and leave once they load up the wood you know, they, you know, run into the issue of getting through the gate. Once they get through the gate, they got to, you know, deal with all the issues in town and so on and so on. So, if I do remember, though, correctly, Calvin, this was your uh, first time watching Hidden Fortress, right? I thought I had seen it before, because it, maybe because it seems so familiar in the influences, but I hadn't seen the whole thing. Yeah, and I think that's uh, a little bit more common within Kurosawa's filmography. You know, everyone talks about Seven Samurai, High and Low... Yojimbo and all those ones, but Hidden Fortress definitely flies more under the radar, probably because it's that more fun kind of, you know, film. It's not the artistic masterpiece that we've come to define Kurosawa by, necessarily. But it's all there still, and it's it's almost kind of like this definition-perfect adventure film for me. I'll uh, kind of uh, put it in the same category as kind of Raiders, Raiders of the Lost Ark later on. Yeah, I think it's a good pairing with, like, an Indiana Jones. Uh, I think it's a fun adventure, and um, I think that's probably why it's not why you come to Kurosawa for an adventure film. You don't expect to, but it, you know, it just proves how, how masterful he actually was at this craft, and that not only can he do the fun stuff without, you know, injecting it with too much poignancy or, you know, commentary stuff or whatever, but it's all done in a very artistic manner and very capable manner. You know, like we said, the pacing of the film is incredible, and the cinematography especially is gorgeous. I still... I, I think in my mind I have these crystal, you know, replications of the framings of the shots on the mountainside there, and mm-hmm. how I especially again once I get up on the other side there, and I imagine just the the tiny Mufune coming out of the fortress there, and you see him perfectly in the frame, and he yells out to them to get the hell down there. Yeah, it's great. Uh, there's excellent framing, and Kurosawa was really a master of that, especially characters and how he uses the depth of the camera to. Uh, to place his characters here works very well. Well, the depth of the camera, that's also, uh, we mentioned earlier, that's another uh, Ford influence. You know, Ford was yeah. a huge, you know, he, he pushed the, the boundaries first, even before Orson Welles did in Citizen Kane. With the, you know, Ford used them first with uh, Greg Toland in uh, Grapes of Wrath and Long Voyage Home. Yeah, um, and that's very evident here that he's pulling from that influence. Because, mm-hmm. of course, as you know, we mentioned, he was huge and 
Western influence in general on uh, Kurosawa. And again, very evident here and why I think it translates back. It's interesting seeing the chain of events, how, you know, uh, it goes from the Western influence with Ford over to Kurosawa, back to, you know, uh, America again with Lucas and Spielberg and all of them taking, you know, huge uh, inspirations from Kurosawa's work. Uh, I think that's why something like a Spaghetti Western or a Star Wars could still be, you know, chiefly American because it's influenced by a Japanese film that's influenced by Americans, so that works out. And I think it's important to note as well that knowing and seeing the clear influence here doesn't in any way cheapen Star Wars or, you know, Westerns or anything like that. It gives a bit more context to them, but you can see that it is inspiration and not imitation except in maybe the case of A Fistful of Dollars. Which I even disagree with you about, because I love that kind of imitation. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, uh, it's kind of honoring Kurosawa, in a way, to translate I mean, it in that sense. It would be more honoring if he credited him in the first place, but that's just my it would opinion. Be nice. <laughs> It'd be nice if there weren't lawsuits involved. But, and, but I remember Kurosawa did say that he ended up making more money off of uh, a fistful of dollars than he ever did on Yojimbo. <laughs> Which is uh, frustrating, but uh, also what happens with the... It's never the people that innovate that uh, initially get the credit. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it, not that Yojimbo didn't get the credit, but that just goes to show how influential and popular that the Spaghetti Western you know, easily became and how you know profitable uh, someone like Clint Eastwood was at the time. Yeah, exactly. And Clint Eastwood was a pretty good American stand-in for uh, Mifune. I, I, I certainly agree, though I know you have, have such a huge uh, crush on Clint Eastwood there, but Mifune, I'd, I'd almost qualify him for, for best actor ever. He's so magnificent, and this is just one of the, the many different kinds of roles he plays, but he does the, the bombastic general so well here, and he buys him. He's intimidating. He really commands presence in it. He, he does. Uh, just his positioning can, can really... It inspires confidence. You believe in him as a general. Um I'd put anyone would put Mifune in their top ten, right? If they've yeah. seen his films, certainly he has a very firm stance. I love, and his face is really good. I love the the scruffy beard. Everything is going on. If you ever <laughs> see uh, Mifune kind of clean shaven, it, it takes a little bit of the mystique away from him. He looks much better with the kind of whole beard thing going on. I have to say, yeah, he really looks like a, a feudal samurai. It's it's an excellent look. Mm-hmm. And he and he embodies it more so. It's a Incredible to me, uh, I think maybe we talked about this briefly with uh, Graham on the Yojibo podcast, but, you know, y- you never know where you find these guys. Kurosawa found him because he was a, a lighting guy, you know, oh, originally. Really? Yeah, Mufune was a, a lighting tech or whatever, he was a prop man or something along those lines. Um, actually, in the same vein, ironically enough, uh, that's the same kind of situation that John Ford found, uh, you know, that, that John Wayne started in originally. John Wayne was a, was a prop manager and before he kind of made it as a star. It's interesting that, uh, yeah, that's interesting to find yeah, these so, guys on the on kind of the fringes of the movies, and then well, they they'd end up being the, our best actors. Mm-hmm. Well, especially since both of these guys have a, have a similar roles in their retrospective areas, you know, Wayne being a huge Western star, Mifune being the face of the samurai genre, essentially, there, and how they, they start from these kind of humble origins. They didn't have any ambitions necessarily to be that from the beginning. Mifune certainly didn't. He didn't intend to be an actor, he was kind of roped into it from, by, by Kurosawa there, who saw him, and you know, really saw something in him. And I think that's the brilliance of, of a good director like Kurosawa or Kubrick, is that they they just see something, and, and they know what it is when they see it. They, they have to have it. 
Mm -hmm. They really utilize it, and I think as we kind of uh, agree on the site in general that you know of all the iconic director actor pairings over time, you got your you know Scorsese and Nero's, and like we said, Ford and Wayne, or you know uh, Hawks and uh, or not even Hawks. I would probably say more along the lines of uh, Hitchcock and um, James Stewart. You know, yeah. I I think we all agree that Kurosawa and Mifune top out all of them there. That's the iconic duo. I think that's the duo that we go with as a site that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so, do you think mm. you have any more thoughts about uh, the Hidden Fortress here, Calvin? Any? Oh no. Uh, we have a lot of uh, we have a lot of other stuff uh, coming up with uh, on the site. Um, what are yeah, you I... interested in right now? Are you going to go see this Avengers? Uh, this new Avengers. You know, it's a tough call to say, especially with all the news uh, kind of going on here about it and how things seem a little less interesting than we are hoping, especially for a three-hour-long film. I think that's the biggest <laughs> detriment for me. Uh, that, that's hard for me. I need to get out for a smoke break or something after a couple hours. Mm -hmm. It's Well, it's just a lot to want to sit through, and, you know, for something that I don't even know if I'll like yet, and I've got to sit in, you know, not the most ideal circumstances. I, I very much prefer kind of my own home, you know, set up here. <laughs> yeah. Um, I... I, I know it will be crowded in, too. It's not like it's going to be a comfy theater experience. No, everyone's going to go see this for weeks and weeks, you know. Like, like we complain about three-hour runtime, but the Marvel fanboys, they don't give a shit. <laughs> I mean, we're going to be talking about it for at least the next two, three months in the box office. So. It's, it's going to uh, be there I'm for just, a long time, yeah. I, I'm just prepping to have to have something to say about it for all these weeks. So I will have to go see it, but I don't know when. Mm -hmm. Well... Tyler will have our uh, Avengers content continue to roll out here this week. He's going to have our uh, Phase 2 you know, discussion going on. And then he'll be covering Endgame and finishing up Phase 3 right after that. And he'll be covering Game of Thrones, so we need to give Tyler a vacation after this. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. He's, he's definitely taken on a lot here, which we're endlessly thankful for. Uh, absolutely, yeah. We're very grateful for all our staff and... Um, uh, please remember to rate and subscribe the Twin Geek Cast on iTunes. That's our biggest help you could do for us. Yeah, well, I think uh, otherwise we'll be back again next week with uh, another film discussion. Yeah, we had a good short podcast, but it's a linear adventure movie. That's that's fine. Yep. All right, Calvin, see you next week. Take care. Go watch High Life. Excuse me. It does matter. We're in love. James, you don't know what you're talking about. Quit trying to hold on so tight. I'm gone. Long gone. Like a turkey in the corn. You're not a turkey. A turkey's one of the dumbest birds on earth.